All right, well, I remember a time when I went to a really fancy dinner. It was the fanciest place I'd ever been to. It's a place called Mastro's. You guys ever heard of Mastro's? That place is nice, really nice. And I remember we were sitting there. It was like the fanciest place I'd ever been to. And I looked across the room and there was a table with two people at it. One of them was this guy dressed up in this super nice suit. I mean, it looked like a really expensive suit. Thousands of dollars the suit was with all the cufflinks and everything else, the nice shoes. The guy who sat across from him was wearing a golf shirt and jeans. And I thought, wow, I bet one of those guys is really rich. And I told my parents, I said, I bet the guy with the suit is really, really important and really rich. And my dad kind of laughed at me and he said, there's no way that dude is the rich one. The rich one is the one wearing the golf shirt. It's the one who looks like the power player, who looks like he can come up and wear whatever he wants. He's the one with the real power. And I was mistaken. And maybe you would have been mistaken. Maybe you're smarter than I was at the time. But sometimes when we see people, one of them might seem powerful. Another one might seem not so powerful. But oftentimes it's exactly the reverse of what we're thinking. And that's exactly what we see with Jesus here. Jesus is not dressed up in the suit. Jesus is not dressed up super nicely. He's actually before the most powerful person he has talked to so far in the gospels. And yet he is so much more powerful than him that his power, his prestige, his riches, Jesus's riches and everything that Jesus is so overshadows this person he's talking to that it's not even worth comparing. And the problem is at the time, nobody sees that. Jesus is the only one who really recognizes that he has all the power and that Pilate, this Roman governor, doesn't have that power. And I just want us to see this because it's very interesting. So open up your Bibles to John chapter 18, verse 28. John 18, 28 is where we're starting. And what you see on your worksheet, we're gonna do things a little differently tonight. We're gonna work our way through this entire passage and then just go back and see how we can apply this in those four different ways. So that's why you guys got so much room to write at the top of your page before we even get to the application questions because we're gonna slowly work our way through the whole story here and then go back and see what we can learn from it. Main idea here, the thing we're gonna learn is that Jesus is the real king. While Pilate looks like he has authority, and while the Jews look like they have authority, Jesus is the one who looks the most vulnerable and looks like he does not have authority. But the truth is, he is the most authoritative and powerful one that's even in the room. So let's check this out. This is John chapter 18, verse 28. You might remember just before this, Jesus stood trial in front of a guy named Annas. And Annas was the former high priest, but he was kind of the patriarch of this high priestly family. And while that was happening, while he was standing trial and telling the truth and not denying who he is. At the same time, Peter was denying Jesus and denying that he even knew Jesus in the courtyard outside. And it was first just by a little servant girl who just asked him a question. Hey, were you with Jesus? And he said, no, I'm not. And then it was a crowd of people. And then it was one person who asked him very directly, were you with Jesus? And he lied about it. And he said, no, I don't know Jesus. That's the backstory. And what John wants us to see, we jump right into the story. Now the attention is pointed back to Jesus. So verse 28, it says, then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. So remember, Jesus was with them at this upper room. That was John 13 to 17. They were having dinner. They were having a long conversation after dinner. And then he goes to the garden of Gethsemane. He prays. He's arrested probably in the middle of the night. And he stands trial before Annas and then before Caiaphas. But what's interesting here is that John doesn't even mention 
Caiaphas's hearing with him. Doesn't even mention his time before the high priest, which is very interesting. And, and uh, so interesting to me when I was studying this, because one of the important things we need to know about the gospel of John is it's the latest gospel. It's the newest gospel, which is not that new. It was only written about 20 or 30 years after the other gospels. And by this point in time, it's probably written in the late 80s or the early 90s AD. By that time, Jewish power was basically nothing. By that time, the Romans had taken over Jerusalem, had destroyed the temple, and the people who were the audience of the Gospel of John didn't really have much context, and they didn't really care what the high priest said. We get those in the other Gospels. What John does is he focuses in on what the Romans said about Jesus, which if you could just put yourself back in their shoes, everyone who received this letter, when it was first written, was a person in the Roman Empire. It would be like seeing, what did the president say? about his time with Jesus? What did the, the leader of my country, my, my area, my empire, what did they have to say about Jesus? And that's exactly what we get here. So John focuses in on what Pilate says. So it says he was let out early in the morning and he says, they themselves, that's the Jewish leaders and um, Caiaphas and Annas, they did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So this was going on during this festival where they were only supposed to um, take these couple meals and do these couple ceremonies, but they had to be ritually pure. And the problem is if they walked into this Roman house, there were things about the house that would make them unclean. We're not quite sure what it was, but they were very clear. We can't even come into the house, which is ironic if you think about it. They're trying to keep God's Passover by avoiding dead bodies or whatever was going on with the house, whatever would make them unclean. But at the same time, what was going on in their hearts is they wanted to kill Jesus. Do you see how ironic that is? John wants us to see, yeah, these people are trying to follow, you know, God's law, but not really because they were completely denying Jesus in the process. They were blind. They were hypocritical. It says in verse 29, so Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Basically saying, look, we charged him as guilty. Why do you need to know what he did? He's clearly guilty. And Pilate's like, what is he guilty of? And they don't even tell him at the beginning here. Interesting. Verse 31, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. Because the Jews had this certain law. And the Jews said to Pilate, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And, he's, and John adds, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death he was going to die. So it's interesting that even in this scenario, don't we already see that the Jews need authority from the Romans to put Jesus to death? There's this authority struggle. Who can do it? Who's allowed to do it? Who is the authority to charge somebody? And the reality is what we're going to see, this is going to keep building up to show that Jesus really has all the authority. It says all this took place in verse 32 to fulfill what kind of death Jesus was going to die. Jesus actually promised in the gospel already that he's going to be lifted up. The way that the Jews would kill people is what we see in Acts chapter 7 and 8 with Stephen, where Stephen is, they throw rocks at him, okay? There's no lifting up of his body, but Jesus is going to be lifted up, right? You probably know how Jesus died. He died on a cross, a Roman um, hanging rack, where they'd hang people to death so that they'd suffocate. They'd have to scrape themselves up the, the tree and back down the tree to take every breath. And the idea was it was a long form of torture and execution. So it was not a quick execution. The purpose was to torture them while they were dying. 
And Jesus said all of this, all this took place, John said, to fulfill exactly what Jesus said. So we see Jesus is already in control here. Verse 33 says, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus to him and said, are you the king of the Jews? Which is an interesting question because that seems to be what they were saying. He's the king of the Jews. I think what Pilate's asking here is he's asking if he is a political revolutionary, right? And what I mean by that is imagine um, someone in politics who comes in, stirs the pot, says, hey, let's get all these Jewish people. We're gonna rise up against the Romans. Let's kill all the Romans, right? He's asking Jesus, is that what kind of a, a king you are? Are you making yourself out to be some kind of king who's gonna overthrow Rome? You're gonna be a king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him, do you, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it about me? Which is interesting. Jesus is on trial. He starts asking questions of Pilate. It's almost like the, the script flips here. He says in verse 35, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Clearly your people don't like you very much. They want to kill you and they're not even telling me why. So what did you do? What have you done? You must have done something bad. Did you insult them? Did you break their law? Did, did you say something bad about their mom? Like, what did you do, right? They're clearly very mad at you. Uh, obviously, he didn't say that. Um, just why, why, why are they so mad at you? That's what Pilate's asking Jesus here. Then Jesus turned to him, answered, this is verse 36, and he said, my kingdom is not of this world. He says, no, my kingdom, my reign is not from this world. It doesn't come from here. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said, so you are a king. If you got some kingdom, I guess that makes you a king, right? Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. Basically, yeah, you just said it. You said I'm a king right there. I am a king. He's not denying it. He says, for this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world, which is different than you, okay? You could be born for a purpose, but you don't come into the world. Right? Not like Jesus did anyway. Jesus existed before and then comes into the world. You did not exist before you were born. You just were here, right? When you were born, now, okay, now you're here, right? Jesus was different. He existed before he was born. He said, my purpose was to come into the world and to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, which is interesting. That's what the whole gospel of John's been about. The beginning of the gospel of John, it says, Jesus came to his own people, but they didn't even receive him. Think about all the Jewish people that Jesus talked to that did not receive him. It was crazy how many of them didn't. Pilate said to him, interesting question, what is truth? And I don't think he's asking for an answer here because he says in immediately, right? He, once he said this, he went back inside. So you can just imagine Pilate saying, what is truth? And then leaving, storming off, going back outside to the Jews and told him, hey, I find no guilt with this man. Says this guy's not guilty of some kind of overthrowing of Rome. He clearly is not the type. And also, what, by what he's saying, he's saying he has some otherworldly kingdom. Right? Clearly, he's not a threat to anybody. He just thinks that he's got some kingdom that's not in the world and that he's some king. That, that he's, he, he probably thinks he's crazy. At least at this point, he does. He said, I find no guilt in him. Verse 39. Pilate said to them, but you have a custom... You have a tradition that I should release one man for you at Passover. It's their really special holiday. So do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Now, the other gospels kind of give us some context there. 
saying that Barabbas was a guy who was guilty of insurrection, which would be um, what we might call terrorism or um, killing people and a murderer and a thief here, a robber, in the effort to advance some political cause. And probably the political cause, we don't know, but we guess it's that he was trying to overthrow the Romans. So it's interesting. You've got these two weirdly political prisoners and Pilate says, who do you want me to release? The one who you know is not a danger, the king of the Jews, the one who's just a talker, a preacher, or that really dangerous murderer. Who do you want me to release? Who's, who do you want around your kids? Who do you want out on your streets? And I think what Pilate's trying to do here is he's trying to get Jesus off free. He's trying to get him out because he doesn't want to charge Jesus. Because he, he sees clearly he's not a threat to me. He's not a threat to anybody. But they say, we want Barabbas. Not this man, but Barabbas. Barabbas' name is even an interesting word. It means son of the father, which is ironic because he is substituted for Jesus. Barabbas, a man who's guilty, gets to go free Well, Jesus, the true son of man, son of the father, is judged even though he didn't sin. It's an ironic thing that John includes here. Look at verse one of the next chapter. Chapter 19, verse one. It says, then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. What that means is he took him and he beat him. He had his soldiers take him, tie him to a post and and beat him up. You can imagine how disgusting this would be. And I think the whole point of what Pilate's trying to do is to humiliate Jesus, one, and also to humiliate these Jews for saying, really, you're scared that this guy is some insurrectionist? He's not saying anything violent. He's not doing anything violent. He already said that his followers aren't trying to stop him from even being killed. Why do you want to kill him so bad? The other gospels say that Pilate perceived that they were jealous. So Pilate seems to be playing a game with the Jews here, making fun of them, mocking them by hurting Jesus. I think Pilate wants the Jews to look at Jesus and to feel bad for him. To see him get beat up and say, oh, you know what, why don't we trade places? That, that's enough, we don't wanna kill him. But if you know the story, you know that that doesn't work out. The Jews actually just get more mad. Verse number two says, the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came to him saying, hail, king of the Jews. Another ironic thing there, um, they are giving Jesus fake honor. They don't really think that he's the king of the Jews. They're dressing him in purple just so they can mock him and spit him, spit at him and slap him and say, oh, king of the Jews, there he is, there he is, king of the Jews. Look at him, everybody, you see him? Like they're, they're making fun of him. They're mocking him. They're spitting on him. They just beat him up. His eye is probably swollen. There's blood probably coming down his face. All of that while they're mocking him. Even the crown of thorns is interesting. I think there's some symbolism there. In Genesis 3.18, God said that thorns were going to be a result of man's sin. That there's going to be a curse. And the curse on the world is thorns in the ground. It's interesting that Jesus is bearing the curse of sin in himself. And right here, those thorns show up, pressed into his head. The way that they put these thorns on is they wouldn't just set it on top of his head. They would take a hammer and, and bang these, uh, these thorns into his head. So that he'd be bleeding down at the side of his skull. It says that... At the time, they're mocking him, hail, king of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. They're punching him, they're beating him, they're slapping him. Verse four, Pilate went out again and said to them, as all of this is very public, and the Jews out there see this, see, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know I find no guilt in him. I've given him this punishment, whatever, it's done. Just be done with Jesus, let go. Verse five, 
So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and a purple robe. And Pilate said to him, behold the man. It's also ironic. If you just think about all the connections in the gospel of John, what did John call him right at the beginning of this gospel? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now John is very careful to say, Pilate says, behold the man. Look at him. This is your guy. There's some double meaning in a lot of this. Clearly, it's truly factual what happened, but there's some irony in what happens here. Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, you would think that they would start to feel bad for Jesus. That's a, they say, well, this is a Jewish person getting beat up by a Roman person. You know what? We should probably stop this. But when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him, which is interesting. Because why did the Jews come to the Romans in the first place? Because they weren't allowed to kill anybody. So Pilate is again mocking them. He said, oh, oh, you want to crucify him? Okay, do it yourself then. (laughs) Oh, wait, you can't do it yourself. I have to do it. So he's mocking them again. You see that Pilate is not so mad at Jesus. Pilate is mad at the Roman or at at the Jews. I think there's some historical backgrounds for that. Pilate was a guy who was instated to be the governor of this area. But the problem was he and the Jews always fought. They always did not get along. And what ended up happening later on in Pilate's life, he's actually removed from this position because he sent his cavalry against a group of Samaritans and the Samaritans went and complained to Rome and Rome had him taken out of his post. So Pilate and the Jews have a terrible relationship. They hate one another. And they're going to use that in a second. They're going to use the threat against Pilate. Crucify him, take him, crucify him yourself. And the Jews answered him, this is verse seven. We have a law and according to that law, he ought to die because he himself, he made himself the son of God. He made himself, he's not the son of God, but he, he said he was the son of God. And by our law, he deserves to die. That's Leviticus twenty four sixteen. It says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, he shall be put to death. And that's what the Jews thought Jesus was doing by claiming to be God. They said, yeah, we would have put him to death, except we can't because of you guys. Next verse. Verse eight. When Pilate heard this statement, that he was a son of God, Pilate was even more afraid. We don't know really why Pilate was afraid. We have some guesses. We think that what the Romans had this interesting view of humans thought that some of them were given special honor. If you've ever studied um, the Greek gods in school or the Roman gods, is really mostly the same set of gods. You know that in their myths and in their stories, sometimes gods came down and and appeared as men. And I think that what Pilate thought is, oh no, I hope I didn't just beat up, you know, one of these Roman gods' kids or son or half-son. So there was this um, suspiciousness that Pilate had, really a type of superstition that Pilate had and thought, well, maybe, maybe this is an important guy. And I think that's also why the centurion at the end of Mark, when Jesus died, said, wow, he must have been a son of the gods just because, I mean, look at all the stuff that happened. So there was this superstition that the Romans had. When they see Jesus, he gets afraid. Verse 10 or verse 9. He entered his headquarters and again said to Jesus, where are you from? Who's your parents? Are you one of these sons of the gods? So he's, he's clearly concerned about this. He asks him, and look what Jesus does. 
interesting. The first time it says in this text, Jesus gave no answer. He didn't say. Why didn't he say? Because if he said, yes, I am the son of God, Pilate probably would have thought, oh, who, are you Hercules or Zeus or Hermes? Like, like which one are you, right? Jesus doesn't even answer. Because if he answers yes, it's going to confuse Pilate. If he answers no, it's not true. So he just doesn't even say anything. He's just quiet, silent. So Pilate said to him, you won't speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority? I have the authority, Pilate says. I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you. It's up to me, Pilate says. Well, you know, if you've been reading this gospel, you know that that's not true. Look what he says next. Jesus answered him, verse 11, you would have no authority over me unless it has been given to you from above, from God. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Who delivered? Who's the Jewish person who delivered Jesus over to Pilate? It's not Judas. It's Caiaphas. It's Annas. So he says this is the high priest's fault more than it's your fault, Pilate. But he doesn't say it's not Pilate's fault either. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. Do you see that? He, he was trying. He said, okay, I'm, I don't want to charge you. I'm, I'm done with this. I'm going to seek to release you. But the Jews cried out. Here's the interesting thing that changes everything about Pilate's mood right here. If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. You're not Caesar's friend. What does that mean? Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Right? Caesar was the, was the emperor, the, the emperor Tiberius at the time. And if we, we know this pretty certainly, that Tiberius and Pilate did not get along. They had a bad relationship. In fact, one of Pilate's best friends rebels against Tiberius. So there's this weird sketchiness between the two of them that's going to end up having Tiberius call Pilate out of his post in Israel. And once Pilate gets to the shores of Rome, Tiberius has died. It's a very interesting story how it all worked out. But Tiberius and, and Pilate don't really get along very well, but he needs to get along with them. So what he's saying here, I think this is a threat. I think the Jews are threatening, we are going to complain to Caesar about you if you don't kill this guy. Verse 13, this is where everything changes. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at the place that is called the stone payment in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover and it was about the sixth hour, which is about noon. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. This is your king. What's ironic about that? Jesus was their king. Jesus is their king. Jesus is the king of the world. They were looking dead square in the eyes of the king of kings, but they didn't know it. They didn't think it. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. At the very moment they should be accepting Jesus as their king, they're saying, we want to kill him. And Pilate said, shall I crucify the king, your king? And the chief priests answered a very stunning statement that is out of character for the chief priests, but they do it because they hate Jesus so much. We have no king but Caesar. He's our only king. So they delivered him over to be crucified. Do you see how in all of that, this is why we haven't even got to point number one yet, because I want to give you some space on your outline, because there's so much here that we learn about Jesus and Pilate going back and forth. And I think the big thing that we learn that we should take away is when we see this, even though it doesn't look like it, Jesus proves over and over again that he is the one who's the real king. He is the one with the real authority. 
He is the one who really is in control of the situation. Pilate is just reacting. Pilate is not really in charge of the situation. Jesus is, kind of like we talked about before. But if we turn the corner and start to think about our own lives and we see this, you need to realize that the person on trial that day is the king of kings, your king. And you and I, we need to recognize Jesus as our king. In the moment where it looks like he's being defeated, he makes some things very clear that his kingdom is not of this world. It's not the same. It's a little different. And more than that, that his kingdom is coming later on and that he is truly the king of the Jews and the king of the world. So the first thing I think we see here, you can write this down for point number one. This comes from verse 28 and 30. We see that the Jews needed Romans and Pilate to put Jesus to death. But the reality is all of that was just to fulfill what Jesus spoke about himself. So point number one is this. I'd love for you to write it down. Remember, Jesus is in complete control. Remember, as the true king, Jesus is in complete control. He said in John 3, verse 14, about his death. He says, as Moses was lifted up the servant in the wilderness so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That was John 3, 14. John 8, 28, Jesus said to them, when the Son of Man is lifted up, put on the cross, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but I speak as the Father has taught me. Again, John 12, 32, Jesus said again, and when I am lifted up from the earth, when I'm on the cross, I'll draw people to myself. That's exactly what happens. Further, if you think about that arrest that just took place that we studied two weeks back when we saw how Jesus was basically giving himself up. He wasn't being taken and on the run. He gave himself up freely. We know that all of this is a part of Jesus's plan and Jesus's control. And further in John 10 verse 18, Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. Nobody. I lay it down of my own accord and I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it back up. Okay, so Jesus has been very clear that he is in complete control. And furthermore, all of this stuff that's happening, the pilot interaction, the him being beaten up, the crown of thorns, the purple robe, all of this was according to God's plan. I just want you to think about that. Why did God want this to happen? Why would God let this happen? This seems like a really bad thing, right? Jesus, the perfect God man, son of God, never told a lie, never was rude to his parents, nothing totally perfect in every situation. He's the one that's getting beat up and spit at and mocked. Why? Isaiah 53.10 tells us why. It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. This was written 600 years before this happened. But what God's word says is it's God's purpose, God's will to crush Jesus, the son. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, when he dies and he gives his life, it'll be an offering for our guilt. He shall see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It's God's plan that Jesus is crushed and that he's raised. That he dies and he rises again. That's God's plan, even from the beginning. When we think about Jesus and Pilate, this conversation they have, Pilate has to ask Jesus what kind of king he is. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, are you asking for your sake, are you asking because that's what they told you to say? What, what, what kind of answer do you want to get here? And Jesus explains that his kingdom is not of the world. Point number two, I want you to understand this. Understand the kingdom of Jesus. Let's understand what this kingdom's like. Understand the kingdom of Jesus. He says a couple things about it that I want us to look at. He says it's not from the world. 
not of the world. And sometimes what we look at there is we say, okay, it's not of the world. That must mean it has nothing to do with this earth, okay? That's not what he said. He didn't say it has nothing to do with this earth or people on this earth. That's not what he said. It's not of this earth. It's not from this world, okay? If you wanted a kingdom that was on this earth, how would you get it? How would you take it? How would you build it? You would need horses, or not now. You would need tanks, right? You would need fighter jets. You would need bullets. You would need money. You would need soldiers. You would need a lot of different things. If you wanted to go conquer some country right now, you would need a ton of ammunition. And you'd also need treaties. And you'd also need diplomat. You would need so much to start taking over the world if you had a kingdom. At the time, same thing. You'd need ships. You'd need horses. You'd need bows and arrows and swords. And Jesus says, that's not what my kingdom is like. It's not like that. That's not how it's going to grow. That's not what it's like. It doesn't say it doesn't have anything to do with the earth. In fact, if we look back at the Old Testament, we see this kingdom of Jesus being described in its earliest stages. Okay? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. We've been in Isaiah a lot. Isaiah 9, 7 talks about the, the kingdom that Jesus is going to have. And it says, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. So whatever Jesus is going to do, when he comes back, he's going to do so much to establish peace. His peace will have no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Jesus is the king. And you might say, well, what is a king worth if he has no kingdom? If I said, I'm the king, if I told you that about myself, I'm the king, you'd say, okay, what are you the king of? Uh, nothing. No, I'm not the king of anything. You'd be, okay, well, you're not really a king then. If you're not the king of something, then you're not really a king. Okay? Some people, when they think of Jesus being the king, that's what they think of. That he's just plain pretend. He's just saying, I have some imaginary kingdom that you don't know about. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's just telling Pilate, my kingdom does not come from this world. I'm not going to gather a bunch of people to fight some war against Rome. That's not what my kingdom is about. After Jesus died and he rose again, one of the last things he said to the disciples in Matthew 28, verse 18, Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Whenever we look up the kingdom and the word kingdom in the New Testament, especially in Matthew and Mark and Luke, especially those, what we see is that Jesus has a plan for his people right now on this earth, and he also has a plan in the future, okay? So there's two aspects to the kingdom talk, okay? There's something that, there's some present reality now, some, but then there's this final reality where Jesus will reign as king. Let me put it to you like this. Um, when we talk to Christians, if you are a Christian, okay, is Jesus your king? Right? You'd say, well, yeah, he is my king. When did he become your king? Well, when I turned to Christ, when I, when I repented, when I became a Christian, when he saved me. Okay, um, do you have like a passport or something right now? Like where does it say that he's your king? Like, oh, well, not like that. Uh, he, but he will though. I will have a passport one day that says New Jerusalem or that says Heavenly Kingdom or whatever. Might not need passports then, but... The point is, at some point, you will be sitting in a chair, listening to someone talk about the Bible in God's kingdom, where you can turn on the TV or walk down the street and Jesus is there. 
right? That, that is the future reality for everyone who's a Christian, right? Revelation 20 talks about how we reign in a kingdom. Revelation 21 and 22 talk about this eternal kingdom that Jesus is going to be in. But the question is, are you in Jesus's kingdom now, right? Well, in, in one sense, like that Jesus is my king, but am I like actually in it right now? Am I in the final consummated perfect kingdom where Jesus is reigning right now? Well, no. But how does the kingdom and the group of people that are going to be in the kingdom, how does that grow? Well, right after Jesus said in Matthew 28, 18, that all authority has been given to me, what does he say next? Go therefore into all the world and make disciples. That's how this group grows, right? And maybe a better word for us to use um, about um, the, the kingdom aspect now is a word we use more often in the New Testament, the church, right? People that are here, right? They're not exactly the same thing. The kingdom is like going to be in the future. Is there an aspect of it now? Yes. But right now we're called to be a body of believers that are waiting for God's kingdom to come. My kingdom is not of this world. Revelation eleven fifteen talks about the kingdoms of God, the kingdom of God. It says, in the end, when the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, he shall reign forever and ever. Basically saying this, there will be a day when every tank, every bullet, every vest, every uniform, every aircraft carrier, everything that is on this earth will be turned over and be property of King Jesus. That will happen. That's what he's saying. So that is not our present reality right now. We live as a kingdom of Christians among many kingdoms. Okay. But just know that when Jesus talks about this, he's not saying it's never going to happen. Next thing we see in this passage, we see all these people mocking Jesus. We see Jesus being mocked by Pilate, being beat up by the Romans, and being mocked by the Jews. I think the ironic thing is, they look at him, and he is the king of the Jews, and they mock him as the king of the Jews. And if we're going to respond rightly to King Jesus, we need to have the opposite. Not a mocking honor, but a true honor that you can give to Jesus this week. Point number three is this. Honor G King Jesus, who holds all authority. Honor him. How do you honor Jesus, though? Right, if he's the king, right, you can't honor him by bringing taxes to him. You can't honor him by going to his, his throne room in some geographical place where you can go walk up to him and say, hey, here's, a, here's some, you know, my most expensive thing. Here's my biggest sacrifice. Here you go. That's not how Jesus calls us to honor him right now. We honor him by living for him. We honor him by serving him. We honor him by what we talked about this weekend at camp, loving one another as he's loved us. That's how we honor Jesus. We honor him by thinking big thoughts about him and expressing worship through prayer, through song. That's how we honor him. We honor him when we honor his word and obey our parents. We honor him when we're, we treat our siblings well. We honor him when we open his word in the morning, when we focus on him. We honor him when we pray to him at night. That's how we honor Jesus. I know that's a big long list of things, but we just need to recognize that even these people who mock Jesus, and even the people today that mock Jesus, maybe you have some friends who mock Jesus. Maybe you are a person who doesn't take any of this seriously, and maybe you mock Jesus. Pilate did. These Jews did. The Romans did. Philippians 2 says that God has highly exalted Jesus, and one day every knee will bow, including yours. And that you, at some point in time, you and every other 
person that has ever been created, you at some point will bow to Jesus, whether in this life or in the next. Everyone will bow. You, every atheist you know, every criminal you know, every supposed good person, every supposed bad person, every person that has ever been created at some point will bow to Jesus. But the problem is some of them will not bow in a right relationship with him. Some of them will be forced to bow by Jesus. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. What that means is every single person, you, me, every person has ever been born, will agree, will confess, even with our tongues, we'll say Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God whether you're stubborn or whether you are a person who is really nice, you will confess that Jesus is the Lord. The problem is, if we don't do that now, if we don't repent and recognize Jesus as the king now, he will have to force us later on. And the people who don't recognize him as king now, the people who do not serve him now, the people that don't turn from their sin now in this life, they're gonna be separated from him. They don't get to enjoy the benefits of his kingdom. These Jews say something really shocking if you think about it. In verse 15 of our passage, John 19, 15, they say, we have no king but Caesar. Nobody, not even God is our king. That's what they just said right there. They were so mad at Jesus, they rejected him. It'd be a shame if you rejected Jesus as your king today. Obviously, there are plenty of people who are doing that. People that you might think are cool, People you might think are popular or smart or whatever, they're rejecting Jesus as king right now. Point number four, please don't reject Jesus as your king. Do not reject him as your king because he is the king. He is the true king. He has all the authority. Do not reject him as the king. Pilate rejected Jesus. He didn't care. Jews rejected Jesus. They even reject the father. They don't even accept God as their king. They say, we only have Caesars, our only king. He's the only person we listen to. It reminds me of a verse in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11. 11, 12, and 13. 11 to 13. God speaks through Jeremiah, and he says something amazing. He says, has a nation changed its gods, even though they're not gods? He's talking about his people, Israel. He says, but my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. God says, be appalled, be angry, be appalled, oh heavens. Everything, just the whole world, just be angry at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. Why would would, would God call heaven and earth and everything just be so mad about something? What would he call them to be mad at? Right here, for my people have committed two evils. One, they've forsaken me. They've left me. They don't regard me. They don't submit to me. They don't listen to me. They don't obey me. They've committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that could hold no water. There's little holes they dig in the ground to put their water in to keep it. You ever tried to store water at the beach in the ground? What happens when you pour water into the sand in the ground, right? Just goes away, right? You can't hold water very long in that that sand because it all just goes away. God's saying, it's like you took the the good water, the living water, the bottled water, and you just, oh, let me keep it over here. I don't want to keep it in the cooler. It's all ice and perfect. Let me just pour it into the sand. I'll hold it right here. It's like, that's what the people of Israel have done with their God. They've left God. They don't trust God. 
and they're just serving their, their own gods of popularity and fame and money and all that stuff. The reality is people can do that today too, can't they? People can come to church, they can hear the truth about the true king, and at the same time just disregard it and turn away. Please don't turn away. Don't reject Jesus as the king. I thought of this when we were driving back from winter camp. Uh, we drove by that big campus, um, California Baptist. I don't know if you guys noticed that. Big campus. The letters are super clear across. Some people at our church work there. Um, just interesting place. And I saw a funny car as we were driving on the freeway right next to it. It was the security patrol car for Cal Baptist. And it was right on the 91 freeway. And I thought it was really funny because uh, they can't pull anybody over. They can't pull anybody over. They have no authority, right? A hundred feet that way, they have authority, right? We were driving right past the street, but the, the car was just getting on the freeway. It was right next to us on the bus. I'm like, that's so funny. They have no power now. They have no power because they're not inside the gates. Now, if they rolled up on some students in that campus, guess what? They've got a lot of authority, don't they? Because they could say, hey, don't do this, do that. They're the patrol. They're the, they're the authority there. But once you get outside the gates, they don't have any authority. Their authority is just so small and so just minuscule. Right? But if the police, let's just say, were behind our, our, our big bus and they pulled us over, guess what? They have the authority in that area. Right? And even if the, you went inside Cal Baptist, the police could probably, they can still pull you over in there. They still have authority in there. But guess what happens when you go outside the borders of our country, right? Then those police, they can't arrest you because now they don't have authority. Everyone's authority is all limited. Same thing's true for Pilate here. Same thing's true for the Jews. They have some authority, but it's all limited. It's only Jesus who has authority that, that spreads over the whole earth through all of time and all of space and all of history. He has authority over every person in this room. But not everybody trust him. Not everyone turns from their sin. Not everybody submits to Jesus as the Lord. As we study this passage, I just want you to see that Jesus is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. Now we need to submit to him. We need to serve him. We're going to talk about that in small groups. We've got a lot of questions we want to go over. Only a few, I guess, we'll have time for. Um, but I want us to pray, and I want us to see that Jesus is the real King, and that for those of us who are not submitting to Jesus as the King, we need to submit Let's pray.